So on, on this path of the Buddhist teachings, we hear a lot about dukkha, a lot about suffering. So tonight I'd like to talk about happiness and the pursuit of happiness. And of course I want to recognize and acknowledge that it's through opening to, to dukkha that we deeply understand happiness. But there are several um, practices that we can do with conscious awareness, conscious intention that can incline towards that well-being, towards that sense of happiness which adds a great balance to our practice. It's a boon to our practice on the cushion and also uh, at home in our daily life. It brings us to that balance that is so uh, important in our uh, opening to the Dharma. So this is not the happiness about getting or acquiring anything, even about attaining anything, attaining the Dharma or the different levels of uh, enlightenment or experience of the Dharma. But it's more about letting go. This is what spiritual happiness comes from, comes from letting go, not about attaining anything. In fact, on the path of the Buddhist teaching, uh, this happiness is through the letting go of greed, hatred, and delusion. It's also about appreciating, appreciating whatever... uh, is there in our lives that we can appreciate, being able to recognize that. It's about not being weighed down by ignorance. So tonight I'd like to talk about the kinds of happinesses we can rejoice in, we can develop by giving attention to them. So briefly, um, this is sort of an overview of our overall Dharma practice also that we've been doing here and how we can uh, outline our our practice as a whole in our lives. So there's the practice of gratitude and closely behind that there's the practice of generosity. Then as a third practice of happiness uh, there's a practice of virtuous activity or sila which comes out of our deep sense of care for ourselves and for others. The fourth practice is a practice of samatha, or concentration, and this is protecting the mind and heart from the hindrances. So it's seclusion from the hindrances. And all of this leads to the happiness of wisdom, the happiness that comes from insight, from seeing things as they really are. This is protecting our minds from wrong view and awakening what is called right view in our hearts and minds. So to begin with, the Buddha said that there are two kinds of remarkably rare and precious human beings on this earth. And those beings are those who are generous and those who are grateful. And um, 
It always makes me happy just to hear this because each of us as human beings have those two attributes just very naturally. They come very naturally. And so then I feel really um, wonderful and happy that I'm part of those two rare and precious human beings, at least some of the time in my life, if not more than some of the time. So the first is gratitude that I want to speak about. When we feel gratitude, if we notice carefully, there's um, a dissolving of that sense of separation between us. When we feel gratitude, uh, we don't have to look too deeply to realize that my life, my existence on this earth, depends a lot on the kindness of others. It, it may be big things like taking human birth from the womb of a mother, my mother. Or it may be this, the things that are, aren't so um, big, but really when you look at it, it, uh, it, it is quite big. And that's, you know, being able to eat, having food, having wonderful food here. I, I think we're so blessed that we have uh, wonderful cooks, people that really support us and really love us. And there's so much prana or mana in the food. So there's gratitude for big things and small everyday things, people opening the door for you, um, the water that's left here. My neat little... um, (laughs) Whatever this is, it really works. Thank you. (laughs) I'll remember this in other places. (laughs) So to me, that gratitude, that sense of not being separate, that my life is connected through kindness um, with others. And there's, there's really no separation, especially in retreat. It's like we're all working together. Like Nancy said at the beginning, it's, it's as though there's each one of us, maybe 30 of us or so, but really there's one of us. And it's like we're, we're just all working together to make this happen. It's like a, to me, it's like a holy communion with life. I, was, I, lo- I loved taking holy communion when I was a practicing Catholic. But every moment of gratitude is like a holy communion to me. And there's a lot of peaceful happiness that comes from that realization, that tiny moment of gratitude and um, the happiness that comes after that. There have been, in recent years, as we all know, a lot of studies done about what happens when the mind is calmed. Um, when there are practices of compassion going on. They've tested all these Tibetan monks. What happens to the mind then? And recently, uh, there has been a study that's come out that's, test, that's uh, researched the attitude of gratitude and the beneficial effects it has on our physical as well as our mental well-being. So... This was very interesting to me. It was something very simple that you come across on the Internet. And so I just went into it and 
read a few of the major things. In those moments, and I think it's, a, it's especially poignant and deep when we're mindful of the gratitude, not just in the feeling of gratitude, but a mindfulness of the gratitude. When we check into that during the mindfulness of gratitude, we see that there's a deep sense of relaxation. The mind just totally feels relaxed, a lot because it feels safe from that deep connection, that um, non-separation. And it gives rise to that quiet happiness that I just spoke about. So, having read a little bit about this, I was checking more into that feeling of gratitude. And some months ago, um, just before I wrote parts of this talk, I was putting away my mother's pictures. I, I had a lot of more pictures of her out. Um, during for a whole year because she had died last March and on her year anniversary I thought well I'll put some of these away and I'll leave one out so I saw pictures of her that were younger and then pictures of her as she grew older and just for a few moments standing there and looking at her picture and her youth and growing older, and one that was right around her birthday just before she died, a few months before she died. I reflected on all she had done for me and for others during her life. And, um, you know, it was very poignant, of course, and I I could feel a little choking and and a little warmth around my eyes and some um, liquid forming, some tears forming around my eyes. But mostly it was that kind of welling of the heart that opened up with so much gratitude because my mother was a really good mom. I know, I know that not all moms are like that and um, I always kind of hesitate to say this because it somehow makes someone in the audience feel bad. But um, she was a really good mom and she did a lot of things that um, were a model for me. She only went to fourth grade of elementary school, but she was really, she had a lot of presence and kindness, and um, she was the best mom I could ever have. And I felt really, really grateful in those moments. And I think that, I thought at that time, and I still do think, I don't put enough energy into consciously feeling grateful. So... I like this thing that's going around recently. I think that James Barraz is doing and um, others of my friends are doing, calling each other and, or emailing and saying what they're gr- grateful for today. But in a way, I, I've done that a little bit. We, we do that kind of willy-nilly and hurried-up way. And I just like to really you know, do something that, where I'm really quiet and pay attention to a bird song or to the water I'm drinking, or something like that. It brings a lot of happiness. And I remember, to um, one of the teachings I heard from Tibetan teachers, and I don't know if this is throughout all of the Buddhist teachings, but I heard this from Tibetan teachings. The four most precious opportunities that 
we can reflect on as human beings that will bring about gratitude and happiness for us. And the first one which I want to expand upon is being born as human. And I realize that I don't give enough time for that, you know. I, a lot, we take it for granted. And in fact, you know, I even grumble about it a lot, how it aches and how the body aches and, you know, how it, it just uh, can't keep off the weight and, you know, just how the mind does what it does and Anyway, I'll go over the others and I'll expand more upon the first. The, the three others are hearing the Dharma, finding a teacher that helps awaken us. And the fourth is becoming awakened, becoming enlightened. So being born human, um, that's the one of the four that I don't ponder on uh, very much. It's such a precious opportunity that we have. In our responsible lives, it goes so fast that I wonder if we could remember to stop and reflect on that. It's said that on this plane of human existence, there's just enough pleasure or happiness and just enough pain or suffering to keep us interested in awakening ourselves. If there were too much pleasure, like they are in, there are in some realms of existence, um, we wouldn't tend to be interested in anything else except getting having more pleasure. In fact, uh, it's said that feeling good only creates uh, the hunger for more and more pleasure. They call that the hedonic treadmill. So this is part of the studies that they've done. But I might add that when a feeling of pleasure comes up and there's mindfulness with it, that's a different story. It doesn't tend or incline towards that hedonic treadmill. And if there were predominantly pain we'd feel hopeless. There wouldn't be enough energy to do anything about it. We wouldn't be interested in much more than trying to relieve ourselves from that pain. And I must admit there are some days that are like that for me. But because we're born into this realm of pleasure and pain, we do tend to seek out what is beyond that. And we tend to seek out the end of suffering, and that's why, for our in our own different ways to define that, to um, describe that, that's why we're here. We're all here to understand the meaning of life and to go beyond pain and pleasure. So, in the teachings, it is said that the chances of being born into a human realm are quite precious and rare. And the odds are like this. Suppose there were a blind turtle swimming in waters as vast as the seven seas that we know exist here on this planet Earth. And imagine that somewhere floating on that vast expanse of waters 
uh, were a yoke or like a hoop. And in those waters was swimming uh, a very um, unusual kind of turtle that only needed to come up from, for air every 100 years. Now, I know turtles need to come up more than that, but this turtle needed, needs to come up every 100 years. The chances of that turtle coming through that hoop would be phenomenally rare, it is said, of course, if you look at the odds of that. And so it is said that those are the odds the preciousness, the rarity of being born with a body and mind as we are, human, and to be able to understand a path of freedom. So this is something we can be grateful for, something, this being born human. The simple fact of being born human, if we really ponder on it, can bring about a lot of happiness. So the, the experiment was about counting one's blessings instead of one's burdens. And I try to remember that little, you know, can I incline the mind towards the blessings instead of the burdens? So this experiment was about the effect of a grateful outlook on our mental and physical well-being. The participants were randomly assigned to one of three groups. The first group was asked to reflect daily upon their hassles. The second group was asked to reflect upon their gratitude. And the third group was asked to reflect upon their neutral life events. They kept records of their moods, their coping behaviors, uh, what was happening mentally, what was happening physically, and their overall <coughs> life appraisal. And at the end of this uh, research, they found that the Attitude Outlook group exhibited heightened well-being, mental and physical, across the board. So, you know, now they're coming to see through research um, that what we kind of always knew intuitively is actually true. So the results of this experiment suggest that a conscious focus on our blessings and on gratitude in our life may have emotional health and uh, physical well-being results for us. Something to really take into serious uh, account. Sometimes the poets point the way to gratitude much more than the scientists do, though and can demonstrate it, uh, its benefit. So here's one I found by uh, Jane Kenyon. Now, Jane Kenyon was a poet who understood appreciation a lot. Much of her life, she was plagued by uh, bipolar disease and severe depression. And actually, she died of leukemia in 1998. And she wrote this poem called Otherwise. I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood. All morning I did the work I love. 
At noon I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day just like this day. But one day I know it will be otherwise. So that's about the gratitude, the happiness that comes from that. It brings a sense of deep happiness, quiet kind of happiness. It's said that in the Dhamma, just as physical beauty is to the body, the beauty of gratitude is to the mind. A person um, who's grateful, it, it shines through them, even when there isn't a, a physical, our, our idea of physical beauty. I always remember a lady who, who would come and help us clean the decks um, before a day long. She would say thank you all the time. She would say thank you for everything. You know, I'd give her, say, oh, you could have a glass of water now. Why don't you stop? Oh, thank you. And then I'd say, oh, there's a, there's a cloth over there you could use. That might be easier. Thank you. And then, you know, she'd finish the decks and it would all look clean and she'd say thank you to the decks, you know. Just she shined. Her personality shined with, with gratitude. So then there's generosity. That's the second um, cause and condition for happiness to arise. Our lives, again, are dependent on the generosity of others. And this is a way I reflect all the time. We, get, we have gratitude for that. But just the recognition that it's the kindness and the generosity of others that makes our life happen. Um, it's said that the act of generosity is completely surrounded by happiness when we look carefully when we have the intention to do something that is helping another being, sharing our lives with another being or other beings, just in that intention we can see a brightness to the mind. So it's really important to notice. So this generosity is not just um, done willy-nilly with anything we do. It's important to bring mindfulness around everything we do with generosity. Just the moment of intending to offer something. Notice what happens to the mind then. And then the mind, uh, what happens to the mind when we actually carry out that intention, when we're actually giving what we intended to give? What's happening then to the mind? It's, It's very light. It's very expansive. There's a lot of connection going on. And afterwards, when we think about what we've done, um, it's not about puffing ourselves up, but it's it's something noble that we see in 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 ourselves, and then something that we we can recognize more readily in others. That uh, giving and that sharing and that happiness that comes from that. 
So nowadays we're hearing more and more about the carbon footprint we make on this earth um, by using fossil fuels through the use of our cars, by flying, you know, by uh, planes that use these fuels, electricity, and how this emits carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, of course. We learned that through the planting of trees, there can be a counteraction to all of that. And we also learned that one tree sequesters up to 50 pounds of carbon dioxide a year. So um, before actually we even learned this, we knew that trees were good for the earth. So several years ago, five, seven years ago, we decided to plant a lot of trees on, on the property. We just have a small piece, 17, 18 acres in Hawaii. So we started to plant trees, and we ended up planting a thousand trees. And uh, in, the, in the intention to plant that, those trees, there was a lot of happiness, you know, that we were really doing something good for the earth, for many, many beings, um, not just human beings, and for ourselves too, of course. And uh, now when we look back and we see the trees, you know, people came by to plant them. We planted over 300 koa trees, which are the indigenous trees of Hawaii. Koas are very strong and they have beautiful wood. And we had these little baby trees that people from our community came and put them in the ground. They were only so small and now they're about how tall? 30, 40 feet in just how many years? Seven. Seven years. So just looking at that and thinking about all the happiness that all the yogis had that came and planted the trees. So I really can see that before, in the planning of it, during and afterwards, you know, how much happiness there comes from that. It's a, that giving, that sharing of ourselves. Those trees are supporting life beyond our, our lifetime even. And our hearts rejoice in that. A lot of happiness there. So when we take a moment to remember our acts of generosity, see what comes up in your heart. You know, that, that kind of happiness, it, it, that wasn't about getting anything. That was about sharing of our life. That was about giving In the suttas we read that the Buddha would offer the Dhamma in a gradual way when he offered the Dhamma to a community or to a family. He would often begin with a teaching on generosity. He said about generosity, it is the beginning practice for those who wish to diminish the forces of suffering. It is the beginning practice. And it said that You know, the Buddha had so many ways of describing the Dhamma. So he would have the one of this, the two of that, the three of that, the four noble truths, and on and on. And so there were what is called the three foundations of our spiritual development. Manindra would call these the three pillars of the Dharma. That was Manindra Ji's name for it, three pillars of the Dharma. They were dana, the... uh, uh, giving, the uh, practice of giving, 
These are all mindfulness practices, by the way. Dana, Sila, the practice of living in harmony with one another. And the last is Bhavana, the, which are the practices of developing concentration and also insight. And all of those we're developing here in retreat. All of the things you, you give of yourself to one another, to support one another, to help in the kitchen, and anything else you're doing here, uh, this is this is the act of sharing also. Sila, living in morality, um, and bhavana, the cultivation of concentration and insight. So, in the teachings, dana isn't always spoken of in a formal way as a formal teaching. So we're trying to include that more as a formality. Because establishing each of these foundations with a lot of conscious care uh, makes sense. Not to skip over anything or not to minimize or not to put in the background something that is actually very important to our spiritual growth. This is a foundation from which wisdom grows. So it gives us, again, a tremendous sense of interconnectedness, a sense of stability. Uh, Someone said, to ensure against loneliness, practice generosity. just, (laughs) Just that connection brings some happiness to our lives. When we pay attention to it and its true workings, it comes from that deep realization that My existence depends on the kindness, the generosity of others. And so, too, the existence of others depends upon my sharing with others in this life. That's what this life is all about. We have a kind of innate wisdom about that. We know that. But it's it's really just putting a voice to it and really practicing it in our lives. A friend of mine who's connected to the Hawaii State Legislature long ago brought to my attention um, some of the ethical values of the ancient Hawaiian culture that are part of the general provisions of the state of Hawaii. So just to kind of um, wake you up a little bit, I know sometimes these, you know, interesting um, little inserts can help to see something new about uh, an issue, a subject. So this is from the general provisions of the state of Hawaii. Um, And it says that uh, it says about aloha. Aloha is the coordination of mind and heart within each person. It means the mutual regard and affection extending warmth in caring with no obligation in return. So this is all about generosity and this is in the state provisions. Aloha is the essence of relationships in which each person is important to every other person for collective existence. Aloha means to hear what is not said to see what cannot be seen, and to know the unknowable. I think it's pretty amazing that this is part of 
the legislature of our state. So this is the sharing of one's life. Um, It's one of the four qualities of a beautiful human being that the Buddha talked about. Generosity, faith, wisdom, virtue. It's the first of the paramis among patience, equanimity, metta, etc., etc. Those are the qualities that carry us across this river of confused existence to something that uh, has some deep understanding and uh, liberation with it. Contemporarily, uh, one of our colleagues, who's a professor at the University of California, studied a lot of the ancient cultures and central practices that have existed and that still exist, uh, practices that awaken the heart and the mind. And he found that among the themes, generosity is always among the themes of all those uh, compassionate philosophies that exist to awaken the mind and the heart. The Buddha said, if beings knew as I know the results of sharing, they would not enjoy their use of any gifts without sharing them with others, nor would the taint of stinginess obsess their heart. And even if it were their last and final bit of food, they would not enjoy its use without sharing it if there were anyone to receive it. I always remember how Manindra, when he would stay with us, um, I would come home and say, Manindra, was your day okay? You know, I'd have to leave him during the day. Was everything all right? You know, you were alone here. And um, I'm sorry you have to be alone sometimes. And he said, no, I'm, I'm not alone. There's... There's all kinds of beings here. There's the devas, the celestial beings in the trees outside. There are the animals. You know, we had a dog and a cat. And he said, and there are many insects. And when I finish my food, I give last bit of my food for the ants and the insects to eat. So, you know, he he would put it down for, he would feed them. So during that period, I realized later we did have a lot of cockroaches. (laughs) (laughs) So the results of sharing, very, very uh, happiness producing for us and a wonderful, wonderful, mindful thing that we, we could do more of. So how does letting go, which essentially is the essence of our practice and the essence of generosity, benefit the giver, not only the receiver? That was the big question Manindra asked me. During that same period of time when Manindra was at our home recovering from uh, surgery and some illness, we were, of course, supporting him and giving a lot. And... I did it just out of a sense of what you don't think. I mean, that's your teacher, so you help. And it it just doesn't, you don't have a second thought about it. Um, He's, he passed away some time ago, but he's one of our Dharma treasures. And of course we help. And so 
he asked me once, he said, um, you know, you've been giving a lot, your whole family. You can practice this generosity in two ways. You can practice without fully understanding what you're doing. When you practice in this way, which I didn't fully understand what I was doing in this generosity and this sharing, he said, you will still reap the karmic benefits. The wholesome action of giving produces wholesome results for the giver, depending on the gift, depending on you know, your mind state, uh, depending on the receiver. Different things are conditions, but there are still results from the act of giving, even though you don't fully understand it. Of course, the, the act of giving produces... Um, a sense of well-being in oneself. We can feel that. The act of giving produces uh, uh, some, some kind of wealth for oneself. It may not be huge wealth, but it may be the wealth of contentment for oneself. Um, my aunt used to say, cast your bet- bread upon the waters and you'll get back a casserole. You know, it's like just you give a little and something much greater comes back. You can practice with full understanding. Full understanding means that you'll reap the karmic benefits, yes, but there's also a cause and effect relationship that is far more far-reaching, that is far more powerful than that. It's understanding how the practice of generosity helps us to actually go more towards liberation, liberating our hearts and minds from greed, hatred, and delusion. So that, as Uteshaniya says, generosity helps us give away our greed. But not only that, greed, hatred, and delusion. So what Manindra wanted to do was He wanted me to bring this practice of generosity out of the limited realm of habit. You know, it's it's good, it's wonderful. There's a lot of wholesomeness happening. Being a good person is a good habit, and you do it for that. But he wanted to put it into the light of wise attention. Not just doing it willy-nilly, but having some wisdom around what's happening in a very deep level, on a far-reaching level. And I thought about how true it is that often when I give, it's just out of um, habitual, out of a gesture of being kind, which is great, but it just, I don't think about anything else. Um, It's just kind of out of habit. Or that habit can be out of a symbolic gesture, and I'm not really understanding it. I'm just doing it like everybody else is doing. Um, doing the right thing, of course. We do it because we want to do the right thing. So I was interested in uh, doing a practice that consciously led to liberation. So, of course, I asked him to tell me more. So he said, the aim of the practice of dana is twofold. The first aim is to free others of their discomfort, of their suffering in the present time, 
and also for future times. And this brings happiness to them, the offering of our time, our energy, our material resources, even opening our ears and just in our hearts and just being with someone while they're going through something. This is generosity. This results in greater ease for others. But the second aim to be more conscious about is that it actually begins to free ourselves, to free us from greed, from hatred, from delusion. Not that we do it with that agenda or that self-aggrandizement, but is to understand, to acknowledge that that's what actually happens when we give consciously. We free ourselves because in the practice there is a movement to let go of something. And it, it might be time, energy, material resource, but to stop holding on. And so we kind of feel the diminishing of the forces of attachment happening, which are, is the, uh, a great underlying cause for suffering. So externally it frees others, but internally it begins to free us, to free those causes of suffering from our hearts. There's a movement towards non-clinging. There's a movement towards weakening the strong, centralized sense of self. Um, Achan Shah said, if you don't understand non-self, you may understand it through non-selfishness. It's one of the pathways. He also said, do everything with a mind that lets go. Do not expect praise or reward. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will know complete peace and freedom, the deepest liberation. So, as we know, the opposite of letting go is holding on. And so it's the direct opposite of that mind of clinging. I, we have a friend um, who didn't, doesn't have very much uh, materially in his life. And what he knew that he could give um, is parts of his body to other people. <laughs> so he gave his bone marrow two times and recently gave a kidney. So I hope he doesn't give any more um, because we wonder <laughs> about how he's gonna, what he's going to keep for himself to keep alive. After the first time he gave bone marrow, it was very, very painful for him. And then he gave again the second time. And when he gave his bone marrow the second time, he was outside. Um, we were with him at IMS, a, a retreat center that we practice and teach at. And I asked him, I said, it really hurt the first time. And uh, it was okay for you to do it this time? You know, wasn't it scary to face all that pain? 
And I wrote down what he said because it was really interesting in terms of happiness. He said, the happiness of giving is greater than the pain. He really sensed that, you know, that that giving was brought so much happiness to him. Giving away whatever uh, his greed, whatever could be the cause of clinging, of holding on. So this is the development of non-attachment, the development of loving-kindness, the development of compassion, and of sympathetic joy when we can be happy for the happiness of others who receive the gifts we share. It's also consciously relinquishing delusion when we do it consciously, relinquishing hatred and, of course, greed. So this is a deep sense of well-being when this happens and why generosity is so important as a mindfulness practice in our lives. And so that's uh, gratitude and generosity. And, And speaking a little bit also about the happiness that comes from living in harmony, living in Um, an atmosphere where there is peace in our hearts and and peace around us through paying close attention to not harming. I like the way that uh, I hear from one of our teachers, Upandita, when he gives the precepts, not all the time, but sometimes he translates it as, I will take great care to refrain from harming any living being by killing, by stealing, by lying, by sexual misconduct, by the misuse of intoxicants and drugs. So taking great care, and this is the this is the core of it all. We all know what the precepts are. We've you've taken them every morning here formally in, in the hall. And when we know when we're deeply in alignment with this, that we don't harm anything. Instead of, you know, our hand can easily reach out and kill an insect, but when we can um, just take that insect outside, for example, we feel some happiness in our hearts that we've protected some human life, that we're ha- making a connection with something that's very subtle, but very deep. In the Buddhist teachings, it said that there are two qualities within each one of us that are being uh, brought more to the surface, brought more to conscious acknowledgement when we live in harmony and when we practice the precepts on a daily basis or frequently. And those, are, those two qualities are called the guardians of the world. I love that, the guardians of the world. And those guardians are right in our hearts. It's not anything outside of us except how they're manifested by each one in the world. And they're called Hiri Otapa. Hiri is one, H-I-R-I, and Otapa is the other one. And 
one of our teachers, an Abhidhamma teacher, translated these two as respect for others and respect for oneself. So when we have respect for the life of another, for the property of another, for the, the sense of protection of, of one's body uh, of another, and on and on, then we're really having one's respect for oneself too because we know that when we harm another that it affects our minds. And that's how we respect ourselves in it. It gives a, the gift of safety to others around us. And it gives us the great gift of reliability. When we stay in tune with the precepts on a, on a regular basis, whether it's daily or as regular as you can, we do have this deepening sense that we can rely on ourselves. And that inner reliance, that ability to rely on ourselves, gives us this great sense of self-worth in a good, in a good way, not in a puffed-up way, but in a good way where we feel good about who we are. We can rely on ourselves to not harm. We can rely on ourselves to see when something we're going to say um, is not going to be good for our mental and heart field. And so we refrain from doing that. Um, When I was at the last retreat in Burma, I I was... um, going through my practice and I always felt like when I started to think about something, anything, this was in an intensive practice, I would have this a little bit of what I thought was aversion or um, resistance or something unwholesome to the mind going there. And later I saw that that Waking up to that was the mind saying, oh, there's danger in going there. Be careful. You know, and that was not an unwholesome state of mind. That was hiriotapa. That was respect for myself. And so I went to Upandita and I said, this is what I saw, that that experience of, oh, don't go there. You know, that wasn't aversion it was a wholesome state of mind. That was, I felt that was Hiriyotapa, and he said, that's right, that's true. That was a wholesome state of mind that arose. So now, it's that kind of, when I see that, it's a, the mind saying, oh, there's danger. It's like touching something hot and going, oh, you know, before it really gets burned. So, this protects us uh, in our lives and gives us a great deal of happiness. The mind feels settled and very content. This is from um, the Dzogchen teachings. Now, in our day-to-day lives, we know that the more stable, calm, and contented our mind is, the more feelings and experience of happiness we will derive from it. The more undisciplined, untrained, and negative our mind is, the more we suffer mentally and physically as well. So we can see only too well 
that a disciplined and contented mind is the source of our happiness. So this takes discipline, staying with the precepts, being in alignment with the precepts. Be interesting to see how, if you, if you wanted to, um, experiment with taking the precepts more often in your daily life and seeing, just paying more conscious attention to them and see what happens to your happiness factor, to your practice. So that's about um, the happiness that comes from respecting oneself, respecting another, living in harmony. And now the happiness that comes from the seclusion of mind, of concentration. So here in our uh, Vipassana practice, this seclusion of mind comes from the continuity of awareness on changing objects. So this, we're not doing a concentration practice like on the breath over and over again or on a mantra or on a casina, on a ball of different colors. Um, we're doing uh, this practice opening to objects that are changing moment to moment. And we can develop some concentration from that as well because the concentration... Uh, strengthens through the continuity of mindfulness, of mindful awareness, moment to moment. So what happens when that continuity is kept up is that it creates a force field. And that force field, this is just in a nutshell, that force field that is created through the continuity of mindfulness keeps the hindrances at bay. So in time, even though the objects are changing, and even though those, some of those objects can be aversion or um, strands of aversion or attachment and strands of attachment, the mind doesn't get sticky with it, sees it arise and pass away. So that uh, the hindrances don't take hold of the mind. They, they, they're kept at bay, They slip away. And so we feel very contented. We feel very secluded. And there are times, even short period of times, we may feel this, even in a short retreat such as this. So there's this seclusion, free from sometimes that obsessive kind of thinking. It may have thoughts once in a while, but um, for moments at at a time there's this freedom from obsessive thinking, freedom from the stickiness of greed and, and hatred. And there is a you know, lack of or a lessening of delusion because the mind is seeing very, very clearly. And what arises is what's called happy comfort of body and mind. And this is the way one of these uh, states are described. Happy comfort of body and mind. We feel the mind and body very, very light. So it's a kind of joy that arises. So this is the joy that comes from concentration that really adds to, uh, to the strength of the power of mindfulness. When this happens, then this wisdom starts to develop. 
the visitors to the mind are seen with great clarity. And so um, this is the joy of seeing the Dhamma, of seeing things as they really are. And this is the fifth of the kind of joys I wanted to talk about. Even when it's difficult, look deeply. There is a joy of seeing the Dhamma, even in difficult things. There's just the joy of being able to see, oh, that moment of rage is, arises, it changes, and it just goes away. There's no identification with it. There's not a kind of um, uh, befuddlement of the mind around it. It's not just about seeing impermanence it, it, that sees things that arise and pass away. There's this seeing that everything is evanescent. Things are insubstantial. Everything that arises, all phenomena that arises. There's no solid core that exists inside. You know, the body is seen as insubstantial. The mind and the various parts of the mind are seen as insubstantial. Everything outside is beginning uh, to be more porous, more insubstantial. Not even the interconnection of what is outside and what is inside is seen as solid or permanent. It's also seen as evanescent. So all these various conditions are seen coming together and falling apart, coming together, falling apart, moment by moment. Of course, this sense of self on this relative plane of existence is a useful fabrication in this conventional level of existence that we live in. We respect it, we work with it, it's useful but we begin to see that the relative reality of life is not all that exists. There also exists something deeper in that ultimate reality of seeing how things are, seeing the Dhamma as it really is. And realizing this brings a great deal of happiness. Sometimes it can be fearful in the beginning, um, Sometimes it can be shaky, a lot of vulnerability, which is part and parcel of the path of opening to all this. But in the end, and more uh, enduringly, there is this ever-changing sense of happiness that arises from seeing things as they really are. So these are the kinds of strengths that arise in our practice the happiness of gratitude, the happiness of generosity, the happiness of living in harmony by respecting oneself, respecting others through the precepts, the happiness of the seclusion of mind that comes from even the kind of concentration that's developed in vipassana practice, and the happiness that comes from seeing the Dhamma, realizing the Dhamma, seeing things as they really are. 
And of course it wouldn't be complete which, without talking about sympathetic joy. That's a whole other subject that I, you know, you will hear in other times from other teachers and maybe from myself and even do the practice. But I want to relate sympathetic joy to any of these others because when we see others practicing any of these, you know, a, a person who's grateful and we, we see that gratitude in another, I feel very happy for that person. Mudita, sympathetic joy comes up when I see a person that's grateful. My, my friend says, double the happiness when, when that happens. And then when a person is generous, I feel mudita for that. Happiness, sympathetic joy arises for that. When a person's very concentrated, a deep happiness comes about that person's concentration. Uh, when a person sees a dhamma, great joy arises from that. I remember being at my very first month-long retreat and someone realized the dhamma there. And um, there was a time after a lot of peacefulness that she turned to me and she took my hands <laughs> and she kind of jumped for joy. And I realized, oh, that's possible. And um, that was a great start in my practice to see that happen in my first retreat. And so even now, just remembering her, like a lot of happiness comes up. So these are the happinesses that we are practicing in, in our life, in our Dhamma life, something that we can have great respect for. Um, there's great nobility in all of these practices that we're doing. So I want to end by offering uh, this quote by the Dalai Lama. It's great. Uh, Gratitude for being, living in a time where uh, this great person lives. He said, We are visitors on this planet. We are here for 90, 100 years at the very most. During that time, we must try to do something good, something useful with our lives. Try to be at peace with yourself and help others share that peace. If you contribute to other people's happiness, you will find the true goal, the true, the true meaning of life. So let's sit for a moment. Just let the words dissolve.
Thank you for listening to the Dhamma.